Welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order and then rank them from best to worst. My name's Sarah. And I'm Ben. Thanks for listening to us today. Uh, This is a pretty exciting episode. I have a lot of information and I'm super excited to talk about these people. Yeah, this is going to be a pretty in-depth episode, I think, because there's a lot to unpack in this week's film which is Todd Browning's 1932 horror movie, Freaks. So, Sarah, you've seen this movie before. Um, I think I've only seen it once before. Mm-hmm. I know that this movie has had a lot of controversy around it, like, back when it was first released, uh, and I think when it was re-released in, like, the 80s as well. Yeah, I mean, this is a film that has always kind of courted controversy and has a lot of layers to how someone might react to it and certainly like a lot of things to consider in terms of like what this film was going for versus how it kind of has been viewed over the years. So after Paramount had tossed their hat into the horror ring with Jekyll and Hyde, that sort of was demonstrating to the other studios that horror wasn't just a Universal Studios game and that they should all kind of get in on it, so uh, MGM, Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, was next up. The studio tended to specialize in glamorous, larger-than-life productions, musicals, costume dramas, that sort of thing, so making horror was a bit of an odd fit for them. But they did have one advantage, in that they had Todd Browning, the director of Dracula, under contract. Nice. Browning uh, turned down the chance to direct Arsene Lupin with John Barrymore in order to develop this horror picture, whose plot was loosely based on a short story by Todd Robbins. Robbins' novel The Unholy Three had been adapted by Browning in 1925 as a Lon Chaney film, Mm -hmm. uh, and had also been turned into a sound version in 1930, which was Chaney's last film. The story of Robbins that Freaks would be based upon is Spurs, a 1923 short story about a performer in a circus who marries a freak show dwarf performer for his inheritance. Mm. Browning would use this central premise, but basically jettisoned the rest of the story entirely, uh, in which the bride taunts the dwarf on their wedding night by declaring she could carry him from one side of France to another, and so a year later the dwarf threatens her at sword point until she agrees to do so, and then makes her do it. Okay. Yes. That's a weird ending. Yeah, so that that whole rest of the story wasn't used for the film, just kind of that central premise of the little person performer and the Um, other circus performer marrying him for his money. Yeah. As the bizarre script for Freaks developed at the hands of screenwriters who were picked especially by Browning for the project, MGM production head Irving Thalberg decided not to cast any of the studio's major stars in the film, an early sign of the studio's reticence about the whole project. Oh no. Is that because... They heard about Browning wanting to focus on and incorporate actual performers? Or is it 
because MGM was so new to doing a horror kind of picture? Well, the intent was always to cast actors, I guess, experienced actors in the role of the circus performers in the story who were not part of the sideshow, and then actual authentic sideshow performers in those roles. That was sort of always the intent. Um, it was more the bizarreness of the script and the story as it began to take shape that made Thalberg wary of risking the reputation of any of his big-name stars okay. on the film. Uh, so instead, some smaller MGM contract players were used, people whose careers were winding down. For example, Olga Baklanova, who was cast as the film's villain, um, she had been acting on stage in Russia since 1912 before coming to the U.S. to appear in films in 1926. Uh, she was very popular as a femme fatale in the late 1920s. For instance, she played the villainess in The Man Who Laughs in 1928, but the introduction of sound would largely hamper her career because of her very thick Russian accent. So her career was already in decline when she was cast in Freaks. Browning reunited with his London After Midnight cinematographer Merrick Gerstad and began shooting Freaks in October of 1931 with a cast, as we just mentioned, largely consisting of real sideshow performers. And it's perhaps worth reminding viewers at this point that Browning himself had started his entertainment career as a circus performer in various roles in the circus um, before becoming a Hollywood director. And a lot of those connections to the circus are what served him well in uh, gathering the talent for this film. And Sarah, I understand you've got some information on some of the performers in the film for us. Yeah, we gave a lot of history and also Todd Browning's history in episode 20, which is the second last Browning film we watched, The Unknown. But I'm going to kind of briefly go over the history of freak shows in the United States, just to kind of refresh people's memories and then dive into some particular performers. Mm -hmm. So the first recorded date of these types of sideshows happening uh, is in the mid-1500s uh, in England. They became commercially viable and a lot more stable in both England and the United States in the 1800s, um, but definitely their height of popularity in the U.S. particularly is uh, the late 19th century to early 20th century. There's always a lot of criticism about these types of freak shows with this tension between laughing at people and whether they're being exploited mm -hmm. versus this being one of the few ways these people could earn money, um, having some sort of independence by banding together, having a bit of their own subculture, that kind of thing. It's sort of interesting that those same dichotomies of criticism apply to the film as well about whether it's exploitative versus whether it's um, empowering for the performers in it. Yeah, and I think at the crux of that is how much agency the performers are given both by like the person arguing it, mm -hmm. but also in the production of these shows. Mm -hmm. One of the most famous circuses in the U.S. was started by P.T. Barnum 
um, specifically talking about the American Museum, which was around 1840s and went up until 1865. Okay. P.T. Barnum would later go on to create the um, Barnum and Bailey Circus. Yes. Which I'll talk about in a little bit. And P.T. Barnum was known to give, like, large wages to his performers. For example, um, his one performer, Charles Stratton, who played General Tom Thumb, earned $150 a week. Right. And when Barnum died, he donated half of his life's earning to his performers. So that's kind of like the biggest, earliest example in the States. There's lots of examples of dime museums and especially uh, Coney Island in New York being kind of a hub for these types of sideshows. Coney Island's first freak show opened in 1880, uh, but definitely boomed in 1904 with the show Lilliputia, which featured little people. Okay. P.T. Barnum has kind of this reputation of both being very generous to his performers, but also maybe a little exploitative. Mm -hmm. For example, one performer who we actually see in the film Freaks is Prince Randian. Uh, he was brought to the United States by P.T. Barnum in 1889, when Randian was around 18 years old, um, and he actually performed at Coney Island for 45 years. Wow. So Randian was born in Guyana in 1871 with Tetra Amelia Syndrome. Um, he's a famous limbless performer, best known for uh, his ability to roll cigarettes with his lips, and that's something we actually see in the film. Mm-hmm. But he could also write, paint, and shave himself in his routines. Wow. Mm-hmm. He's also known as the snake man, the human torso, the human caterpillar. Right. Kind of see a theme. Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> in 1919, the Barnum and Bailey Circus merged with the Ringling Brothers Circus into this very long-named Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Circus. Yes. <laughs> They only recently shut down. Their last performance was this year, 2017. Oh, right. That's amazing, because uh, that's almost 100 years. Yeah, they. Uh, I think I remember reading that they had to shut down due to kind of rising costs for taking care of all the animals versus dwindling ticket sales versus, like, a lot of legal expenses due to, like, constant lawsuits being put against them by animal rights groups and stuff, so, mm. yeah. With this merger between these two groups, um, they debuted in New York in 1919, and it was a traveling circus. Um, it was very successful through the 1920s. They had troubles in the Great Depression, but they managed to make it through. Mm -hmm. As Ben said, they are no longer performing. Yeah, like very recently, though. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Many of the circus performers in Freaks had been employed at some point by the Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Circus. I've mentioned Prince Randian, and other notable performers include the Doll Family and Schlitzy. Mm -hmm. In the movie Freaks, Daisy and Harry Earls have leading roles, uh, but there are only two of the four performers in the group known as the Doll Family. They were four of seven children born in Germany, um, but their other three siblings were born without dwarfism. Mm -hmm. Harry and his older sister Gracie were the first to start performing in sideshows as Hansel and Gretel, and they were brought to the U.S. by 
Bert W. Earls in 1914 uh, with the 101 Ranch Wild West show. Okay. Grace and Harry adopted the surname Earls, um, as did their two other siblings, Daisy and Tiny, when they moved to the U.S. in the mid-20s. From there, the Dull family toured with the Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Circus for the next 30 years. Wow, that's a pretty long career. Yeah. Daisy Earls earned herself the nickname Midget Mae West uh, because she uh, had a very beautiful face. Mm-hmm. Um, and though Harry and Daisy had the most film success, the family itself was very close and they lived together in a home in Florida after they all retired in 1958. Yeah, Harry is in like a lot of movies, if I'm remembering correctly, right? Yeah, he is, yep. He's, um, I think, the leader of the Lollipop Guild in <laughs> Wizard of Oz. I think they all got cameos in that, but he's the one with the speaking lines. Yeah, yeah. Or the singing lines, I should say. Sure. Schlitzie, another performer in the Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Circus, uh, and also in Freaks, was born with microcephaly, myopia, and possibly Seckel syndrome. Though it's kind of established... That he was born in 1901, his birth certificate changed hands to different guardians many times, so we don't actually know when he was born and how old he was. Sure. Schlitzie only had the intellectual cognizance of a three-year-old, but he could perform simple tasks. He seemed to understand most of what people said to him, and he was really adept at mimicry. Uh, Schlitzie performed as a pinhead, was uh, advertised as a missing link, And he also appeared very androgynous, with people often alternating pronouns for him. Uh, In the film, the pronouns she and her are used. Mm -hmm. Um, Part of the reason why it's this mix of pronouns and this androgynous look is because Schlitzie had the cognizance of a three-year-old, he had to wear diapers. So it's a lot easier to change him if he's wearing a, a dress rather than pants. Yeah, because um, Schlitzie wears a dress in, in Freaks, as I recall. Yes, yeah. Mm-hmm. While performing with the Tom Mix Circus in the mid-1930s, chimpanzee trainer George Surtees adopted Schlitzie. After Surtees' death in 1965, however, his daughter committed Schlitzie to a hospital in L.A., Uh, where his health would decline and he would become very, very depressed. Mm. A sword swallower named Bill Frenchie Unks was working at the hospital during an off-season, and he recognized Schlitzie. And thanks to Bill, uh, he worked with hospital authorities so that to better Schlitzie's health, uh, he'd be given as a ward to Unks' employer, um, and Schlitzie would then return to show business until his death in 1971. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, while Daisy and Harry Earls are undoubtedly the stars in Freaks, there's another performer that I think is really worth highlighting, and that is Johnny Eck. Okay. John Eckert Jr. was born without the lower half of his torso as a fraternal twin, and he suffered from agenesis. His brother, Robert, his twin, uh, did not suffer. Johnny seems to have always been interested in performing on stage, uh, as he was from a pretty religious family and was often called to give impromptu sermons. Okay. These abruptly ended when he began passing around a saucer for donations. 
Oh. <laughs> Though they were fraternal, not identical, Johnny and Robert looked very similar, and they capitalized upon that when they both went into show business together. Robert was used to emphasize Johnny's abnormality, and Johnny would do handstands and tricks with just uh, balancing with just his arms and his hands. But there's this really great act that they did in 1937 onwards with this magician where Robert would be heckling the magician, uh-huh. be brought on stage to be sawed in half. Uh-huh. Johnny would switch in with a little person playing like the bottom half. Uh-huh. And after being sawed in half, the uh, legs would jump up and run off with Johnny chasing after them. That's a pretty good act. That's a pretty <laughs> good act. Yep. Johnny was at the 1931 Canadian Exposition in Montreal when an MGM scout approached him to be in Freaks. Okay. Uh, During filming, uh, Johnny commented how he didn't really feel comfortable socializing with cast members, which I thought was strange because uh, it seems like everyone else got along, but he felt different from them. I wonder if it's because, like you say, that MGM hired him out of the Montreal Expo, whereas like all the other performers seem to have been gathered from like Ringling Brothers, so maybe just the fact that they already had a camaraderie as performers who knew each other and he was kind of separate and didn't share that same performance history, maybe? I mean, he did perform in the Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey circus. Oh, okay. But... Yeah, that might be it. Hmm. Johnny Eck has claimed that Browning wanted him and his brother Robert to be in a follow-up picture where uh, they would be a mad scientist's creation, Uh, but unfortunately the damage to Browning's career meant that that film wouldn't happen. Yeah. Um, And he was also upset and disappointed by how much his role was trimmed by the 30 minutes that censors cut from the film. Mm Mm-hmm. Johnny and Robert continued to work in sideshows until the shows would lose popular appeal. They would do kind of odd things here and there, always together. Um, and in the 50s, in, in their hometown, they ran a uh, children's train ride in a local park with Johnny as the conductor. Okay, sure. Uh, in the 1980s, the video release of Freaks saw increased publicity, but Johnny wasn't really interested in that. He found it a little strange Mm. that all these people would be coming to visit him and having like this weird sense of fame uh, so many years after the film. Yeah. Uh, In 1987, he and his brother, who were living in their childhood home at the time, they were robbed by one of these visitors who claimed to be fans of the film. Oh, that sucks. Afterward, they went into seclusion. They were I think a little traumatized from that experience. Yeah, understandably. And after that experience, Johnny Eck uh, was quoted as saying, if I want to see freaks, all I have to do is look out the window. Ooh. Yeah, so you you kind of alluded to this when talking about Johnny Eck's later life, but freaks turned into a bit of a disaster for MGM. Initial test screenings of the film were in January of 1932, and they were disastrous. Mm -hmm. Audiences were repulsed by the film's content, with one woman threatening to sue MGM, alleging the film had caused her to suffer a miscarriage. Mm. If, yeah, if Dracula, Frankenstein, and Jekyll and Hyde each kind of saw American horror growing bolder with what could be gotten away with, 
then Freaks was the first horror film to really step over the line of what society considered good taste. MGM panicked and cut a half hour from the film's running time, uh, bringing it to just an hour long down from 90 minutes. While there were many cuts throughout the film, including small bits of business and comedy scenes and subplots, much of the focus of the cuts was around the film's very violent climax, most of which would be removed, and a new epilogue was shot and added to the end of the film in order to try and close it on a happier, less horrific note. Mm. Um, I'll discuss in more specific detail the cuts that were made after we watch the film, uh, just so that they're in context of the plot, kind of without spoiling anything. For sure. The edited version of the film, which ran 64 minutes long, premiered on February 20th, 1932. Freaks had cost $350,000 to produce, but made only 186000 at box office. Ooh, that's a big flop. Yes. Audiences stayed away in droves. MGM pulled the film from theaters before it finished its first run. And it was also banned in the UK for 30 years. The film's failure more or less ended Todd Browning's career as a major director. Uh, he would make only four more films after this, his last in 1939. Critics of the film were largely negative, with quotes like, Anyone who considers this entertainment should be placed in the pathological ward. It took a weak mind to produce it and a strong stomach to look at it. It is impossible for the normal man or woman to sympathize with the aspiring midget. And an unhealthy and generally disagreeable work. Though some outlets, mostly those based in New York, were more positive. Okay. New York was the epicenter of a lot of these like dime museums and freak shows, so that's interesting an interesting correlation yeah like i think the new york times and the new yorker were the only outlets to really view the film favorably mm. it wouldn't be until 1961 a year before browning's own death that freaks would be shown in a retrospective at the venice film festival and undergo a critical reappraisal uh becoming a cult classic and ultimately recognized as a major work uh, gaining more and more fans as like a kind of counterculture midnight movie type of film, especially once it was yeah released on video in the 1980s. Do you think that's because, like you, you said earlier, how Freaks was kind of the first horror film to go beyond the line of where audiences were comfortable with, with horror? So do you think by the 60s, that line had kind of caught up with Freaks? I think that one of the things about Freaks that becomes clear when you look at the critical response in the 30s was that people were not sure who they were supposed to sympathize with in the film. People weren't sure who the heroes and villains were because the general audience reaction would be to be repulsed by the uh, Freak Show performers but they are sympathetic figures in the film. But then at the end of the film, they become violent and become um, kind of a little bit horrific. 
So then you become, there was confusion about who you were supposed to sympathize with uh, in the story. Hmm. Um, and, and it was just a little bit too much for people. And I think by the 60s and afterwards, it was a lot easier to sympathize with these performers. And also I think audiences were more inclined to be sympathetic towards characters who were willing to enact violence and vengeance on other people um, with the rise of kind of anti-heroes and stuff in cinema in the 70s. So a bit more accepting of grey morality rather than black and white. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Freaks is currently available on DVD from Warner Home Video, uh, who eventually picked up the copyright through Ted Turner buying the rights to the film. Unfortunately, it is only available in that 64-minute version. Um, The other scenes from the film, the half hour that was cut, is kind of presumed to be lost because back in the day there was no reason to hang on to deleted footage. Uh, The movie is also widely available on streaming services, including iTunes, YouTube, the Microsoft Video Store, and the PlayStation Video Store. Okay, so if it's on YouTube, is it on our YouTube playlist? Yeah, so a link to the YouTube rental version is on our Scream Scene YouTube playlist. If you'd like to see that playlist, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com, and you can find the movie there. Till then, you will hear a brief musical interlude, and we will be back after watching the film. See you on the other side, everybody. Hey everyone, and welcome back to Scream Scene. We just finished watching 1932's Freaks by Todd Browning. Sarah, did it hold up for you? It did, but I think having an understanding of the horror genre has made me really think about this movie in a way that I think is really interesting. Okay. So I'm really excited for the discussion, actually. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I was was wondering of whether seeing it for a second time, any of the shock value of the film was kind of lessened? How much of the film's impact maybe that first time was just from the shock value? Hmm. I think you're right Mm -hmm. about, like, shock value. Um, I mean, you could maybe say that about any movie. Sure. Yeah, I don't know if it's because... Last time when we watched Freaks, and it was my first time watching Freaks, it was like, hey, here's a horror movie from, like, the 30s. We're watching all these horror movies. Um, And so I was just kind of watching it and taking it as presented. Mm -hmm. But in the context of watching it for this podcast, I'm thinking about genre conventions a bit more, and I'm thinking about what makes this a horror movie, and I'm thinking about, like, how... The film is constructed yeah. in a way that's different than yeah, that was a good horror movie. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't know if that kind of makes sense. Well, uh, I'll give a bit of a plot summary before we go into the rest of the discussion. Okay. It's worth saying that with the cuts that were made, as well as kind of I think the intentionally episodic nature of a lot of freaks, but mostly the sound difficulties 
you know, the primitive nature of sound technology at this point, combined with the kind of myriad of accents as well as speech impediments in this film, mm. um, it all comes together to make it very difficult to follow freaks sometimes and what's going on. That being said, even if it's hard to follow in specifics, it's very easy to understand in generalities. Mm -hmm. um, so to give a plot summary, uh, Freaks revolves around the Rolo Brothers Circus, which is a traveling circus, and I think they're supposed to be somewhere in France, because there's a lot of talk of Paris. The lead characters of the film, there's Hans and Frida, who are two uh, little people who are, at the start of the movie, they're engaged. And Hans also has a bit of an eye for Cleopatra, who is a trapeze artist. And because he has eyes for her, he starts giving her all kinds of gifts and kind of seeing her on the side, uh, which kind of breaks Frida's heart because she knows that Cleopatra doesn't really love Hans. She's just kind of using him for these very expensive gifts that he's always able to get her. Now, who Cleopatra is actually in a relationship with is Hercules, the circus's strong man. Uh, and he's just kind of like a big, dumb, loud brute. He's recently gotten out of a relationship with Venus. Um, I didn't really pick up what Venus's act was exactly. She's played by Layla Himes. She's very pretty. She's working with like a seal at one point, right? We see the, her put the seal back in its cage. Oh, okay. So maybe she works with the animals. Okay. Anyway, so she was in a relationship with Hercules, but she's broken up with him because he's a big lout. Uh, and so over the course of the movie, she has a subplot where she's falling in love with Frozo, who's a clown and kind of one of the few members of the circus who's not a part of the freaks, but still treats them with respect and like human beings. So that's kind of our lead characters. As the story goes on, we get a lot of scenes of kind of these slice-of-life scenes, where the film just shows us these little moments in the life of these people, the various members of the freak show going around their business, going around their day-to-day -day lives, Frozo interacting with them, Venus interacting with them, and the story kind of contrasts Frozo and Venus with Cleopatra and Hercules by how they interact with the freak show performers. We kind of know who the good guys are and who the bad guys are by how they treat these people. And by doing that and having all these scenes that don't really contribute to the plot at all, but let us get to know the freak show performers, it helps us sympathize with them and get to understand them as like a group and as a community and as humans, as people because um, we see them going about their day-to-day -day business. There's a long subplot about the conjoined twins, Daisy and Violet, and how one of them is married to this performer named Roscoe, and the other one isn't, and that's a source of comedy, and, and so on. Mm -hmm. Eventually, Frida goes to Cleopatra to say, like, hey, stop leading Hans around. I know that you just kind of are making fun of him and just kind of want him for the gifts, and that you don't actually love him. Uh, but he really loves you, so it's going to really hurt him when he finds out that you're full of shit. And I know you just want him for his money, because he's going to inherit this huge fortune. And Cleopatra didn't actually know that Hans was going to inherit a huge fortune. Frida just unfortunately just blabbed it. So now, knowing that Hans is going to inherit this fortune, Cleopatra and Hercules come up with a plan where Cleopatra will marry Hans, then poison him to death, inherit the fortune, and then get together with Hercules. There's a title card that comes up at this point, which is very 
silent movie-esque. <laughs> uh, and it just says the wedding feast. And this is probably the key scene in the film where it's Hercules and Cleopatra and all the freak show performers at a big table for this big wedding feast uh, just after presumably Cleopatra and Hans have gotten married. And they're all getting pretty drunk. There's a lot of champagne on the table. And so Cleopatra's not really handling herself well. She's kind of belittling all the freaks and belittling Hans and kind of just being a big bitch. It's because she's drunk and so she's not really holding it in as well as she has in the past. But they also take this as an opportunity to slip the poison into Hans's drink. As the dinner kind of goes on, the freak show performers decide that, like, now that Cleo's married to Hans, she's one of them. Make her one of us! A loving cup! And they're going to kind of induct her into their ranks with this uh, chant that's become kind of culturally resonant from this film. We accept her, we accept her. Google gobble, Google gobble. And this uh, little person, Angelo, he has this big goblet uh, that he is having all the freaks drink from, and then Cleo will drink from it, and that'll kind of induct her into their ranks. Uh, but when it gets to her, she just tosses it in Angelo's face. And Hans is understandably really upset by this. So drunken Hercules suggests that they start to baby him, basically. It's like, oh, does, does Mama have to take baby home and stuff? And treating him as a child because Hans is, as a little person, this is how people are belittling to him, is to treat him as a child instead of as a man. Uh, and they give him, like, she gives him, like, a piggyback ride around the table, which is very belittling. The wheels start turning in the minds of the freaks that, like, Cleo and Hercules are big pieces of shit, basically, after this. The next day, Hans is very sick from the poison he's been given, and a doctor comes to see him and identifies that he has, in fact, been poisoned. But Cleo manages to kind of think on her feet and say, like, oh, well, I was giving him this medicine. Did that make it worse? And the doctor says, like, no, that probably saved his life. So it's a way for Cleo to very quickly, like, say, like, oh, no, you need me, Hans. I'm going to take care of you and give you all this medicine. But every time she gives him medicine, she's slipping more poison in with the medicine to kind of slowly kill him. And this is found out because um, the freak show performers have been keeping kind of an eye on Cleopatra and Hercules since the wedding feast, and Angelo, watching through the window, sees all of this kind of going on and recognizes what's happening. And so pretty soon, Angelo and Hans and some of the other uh, freak show performers start to make a plan to kind of get revenge. Also, just because Hercules is loud and boastful, uh, Venus kind of learns what's going on, too, just uh, from overhearing things. So the climax of the film is the, the trailers, I guess, the, the wagons that make up the circus are traveling through the woods on a dark and stormy night uh, through the mud to the next town. While this is all happening, uh, Hans is in bed in his wagon, surrounded by a bunch of his friends, and Cleo's trying to make them all go away so she can give Hans the medicine that's actually poison. Uh, but they, they won't go away, and Hans kind of gets up from his bed and just says, like, give me the bottle, 
Cleo, like, give me the poison, and they've all kind of got her cornered in this wagon. Uh, one of the little people, like, pulls out, like, a switchblade knife, and um, Johnny Eck pulls, like, a gun out from a holster, and, like... Well, they, they take out, like, the knife and just starts polishing. Right. And Johnny takes out the gun and just starts polishing. Yeah. And it's so great. Yeah. I love it. Yeah, it's very... Like, gangster. Yeah, very, like, threatening <laughs> gangster, yeah. Meanwhile, um, Hercules has decided that Venus kind of knows too much. So he busts into her wagon and starts assaulting her. Frozo kind of gets wind of this, and him and Hercules start fighting. They kind of end up tumbling outside and into the mud in this fist fight. And Hercules, because he's the strong man and Frozo's just a little clown, like... Hercules has got the upper hand of this fight until the freaks show up and rescue Frozo by throwing a knife into Hercules, and then he's kind of left to try and, like, escape as they all kind of crawl through the mud under the various wagons toward him, cornering him. Meanwhile, Cleo's made it out to the forest, and she's trying to run away from Hans and his kind of gang, and they're kind of closing in on her, and she screams, and then we fade to black. The film has a framing device. When it opens, it starts with this carnival barker uh, who's about to introduce a bunch of rubes to a particular freak act um, that he says, like, you know, she was once one of you, uh, and then she ran into the Code of the Freaks, which is, uh, if you offend one, you offend them all. Uh, and now this is what's happened to her. And then he kind of tells us the story of the movie. And when we come back, we finally pan down to see what's become of Cleopatra, and she's been somehow transformed into this, like, legless woman with... She's just kind of standing on her hands, and she's got, like, her torso just ends in a bunch of feathers, and then her, her face is all kinds of mutilated, and all she can do is make these kind of quacking sounds, and so she's now the duck woman. Uh, and it's pretty bizarre and um, shocking. Mm -hmm. Then there's a brief epilogue where we catch up with Hans in his mansion, uh, having presumably gotten his inheritance. Yeah. Um, Frozo and Venus and Frida come to visit him, and Frida insists that, like, she knows that he never meant for it to go as far as it did, and it wasn't his fault what happened to Cleo, and all this kind of stuff, and they reunite, and, um, tearfully, and we're meant to, you know, understand that they're gonna get together... Uh, just as Frozo and Venus have gotten together, and that's the end. Mm -hmm. And that's the epilogue that was added on after the bad previews? Yeah, so I think um, I can kind of go into a bit more detail about the nature of what was changed after the previews. So there was a lot of um, little things cut throughout, and that is kind of obvious when you watch the film. It's a little disjointed in places. Mm -hmm. Much of Venus's story was actually cut out, um, mostly from the beginning of the movie, where originally she was supposed to be a bad girl who was with Hercules, and then she kind of gets sick of him and wants to redeem herself and change her wicked ways, so she leaves him and then gets together with Frozo. And when the film starts, we start with her kind of leaving him. We don't really see that first half of her arc. Uh, the skeleton of that story is still there, but many of, like, the supporting scenes were cut out of her arc. Uh, I guess there was a scene cut where Frozo, like, punches Roscoe for calling Venus a tramp. Oh. Um, stuff like that. There was a lot of comedy scenes uh, cut throughout the film, 
expansions of the kind of existing slice of life sequences. Uh, the biggest change is the climax. In the original film, you know, Cleo's in the forest and she's being chased by the freaks. And what happens is a bolt of lightning strikes the tree she is clinging to and it falls over and pins her and kind of like crushes her legs. Uh, and then the freaks kind of swarm over her as she screams. And then it fades out. Uh, and when we come back and we see Cleo as the duck woman, it's made clear uh, that she was mutilated into the Duck Woman by the freaks. I mean, that's kind of implied in the film, but it's made very explicit. It's also made explicit that she's now mindless. Like, she cannot speak, she can't understand anything. Uh, and we can kind of see in the finished film she's got, like, a big scar across her head. Um, the camera then pans over the circus to a beautiful high singing voice where we see what's become of Hercules, who was castrated by the freaks, and is now this singing eunuch. Oh, the film as is, we cut away from the freaks coming towards Hercules, so I just assumed he was killed. Mm -hmm. The epilogue that was added on to the end that shows Hans and Frieda reuniting was specifically added because audiences were aghast at the sympathetic character of Hans turning so violent and vengeful and kind of being so gleeful at this enactment of vengeance. So that's why there's dialogue in that scene specifically about it not being Hans's fault and how he tried to stop them from going too far and so on, even though that's like clearly not the case when we watch the actual scenes. Mm -hmm. You know, when you're watching this film, it can be a little bit difficult because of how bizarre it is in places. Um, and because there's a lot of really jarring tone shifts mm. that happen, right, between kind of goofy comedy and then later the horror of the film. I do think that even though they're not related to the plot and they are kind of goofy and, you know, just kind of unnecessary, the middle section of the film where we're just kind of learning about all the freaks and, and seeing these slice of life sequences with them is really effective so that in the wedding feast we really feel offended when they're offended. Yeah, definitely. And, and also so that in the climax, we are sort of suitably taken aback and shocked when they all turn violent. Because we've gotten to know them as just being like people up to that point. So we aren't viewing them as, you know, monsters and expecting them to turn violent. We're viewing them as people and then we can be shocked when they turn violent. So kind of where all my thoughts are coming to is... I really enjoy those slice of life scenes mm -hmm. um, because like the idea of going to go gawk at someone mm -hmm. bothers me. Yeah. And what I like about the slice of life scenes is I feel like Todd Browning isn't showing us the characters doing this for shock value or to make us gawk at them. It's to show them as human. Like when we see the humorous tension between Daisy, Violet, and... Daisy's husband, mm -hmm. and, like, Violet storming off like the, the sister would, right. except she has to take Daisy her, with her, yeah. her sister with her. Or even seeing the character, her name's Frances O'Connor, mm -hmm. uh, she doesn't have arms, so she's just, like, eating with her feet. And she's just, like, sitting there having a conversation, and she's just eating with her feet. Yeah, like, just completely calm. Yeah, and it's just, like, these are just people. Um, and I feel like that's the purpose that they're serving. So I think you're right that it serves to make us feel offended for the characters when the wedding feast goes awry. Mm -hmm. 
I think what kind of comes down to with the film for me is that it spends so much time showing us these characters as sympathetic, yet it still has to adhere to conventions of the horror genre. There are some conventions of horror genre which are that deformities are a sign of evil. Right, okay, sure. And that horror is about being scared or repulsed. Mm-hmm. And, of course, like we've mentioned before, they're survivors rather than heroes. Up until the climax where they get their revenge, uh, we're seeing these freaks as surviving this ableist world. Sure. There's so many microaggressions towards them, even by the other circus folk. And not mm-hmm. so, like, outright as Cleo and Hercules. We even see it with Venus mm-hmm. kind of being, like, weirded out that Frozo's so friendly with Johnny and everything. Yeah. To me, it's like Freaks is trying to say that the Freaks are survivors of this ableist world. And yet with this horror climax, because as a horror movie it needs to have a big scary climax, the horror is still coming from those characters. I don't know if that undercuts what maybe Browning was trying to do, where like the horror is supposed to be about this ableist world, rather than horror still coming from these characters who we thought were going to be sympathetic. And also... Because these characters were sympathetic, and I really, like, I really feel for them going through this world and getting revenge on someone trying to kill one of them, it almost makes them heroes in this story. And so, like, as much as this is a horror movie, it's interesting how, like, it gives these so-called victims agency in their own story. As much as they need this code to survive the ableist world, and that still shows that it's kind of like a horror movie, even in the beginning. Yeah, these are these are all my thoughts. I know it's a little jumbled, but... <laughs> there's there's yeah. a lot to unpack with what you're discussing, but I think the central problem that you're having is the central problem that audiences had in 1932, which was they weren't sure whether they were supposed to be afraid of the freaks or sympathizing with them, because... Audience members who were kind of naturally repulsed by the freaks didn't understand the movie's attempts to make them sympathetic. And audience members that did sympathize with the freaks then felt betrayed by the ending where they turn violent. Um, so I think you've hit on kind of this central point. And it's also, you know, I, we t- I talked about this a little bit before the break, but why the film maybe had better cultural resonance in the latter half of the 20th century when audiences were more willing to have violent anti-heroes as protagonists, where seeing someone kind of get their revenge, you know, like this is the death wish of little people movies, <laughs> right? Like, But that's kind of my point. If this is the death wish of little people movies... Is it still a horror movie? So, there's a lot to unpack. Um, I think I think we're going to have to take everything that you were talking about and maybe <laughs> like address it like one thing at a time. Sure, yeah, um, I just kind of threw everything at you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. One of the things that's interesting about this film is that most of the freaks are playing themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're seeing a lot of them just kind of being who they are. And I think... That's one of the things that does make it more shocking when they're, like, when we see Prince Randy and, like, crawling back and forth through the mud with a knife in his mouth coming at a dude. You know, or or one of them, I'm not sure which one it is, but one of the microencephalax 
uh, crawling through the mud with a knife coming at Hercules. Like, because the way the films treated those characters up to this point was, like, cute and friendly and adorable and, you know, this kind of thing. It's children. Right. It's very shocking when they turn violent at the end. That being said, the ones who are called upon to act in specific roles do so very well. Like, particularly Harry and Daisy Earls do, like, a really great job, I think, acting as Hans and Frida. Like, Harry gives a really good, solid performance as Hans. He definitely does. I think because so much of Hans's story of wanting to be taken as a man, I think he can relate to. Oh, for sure. Absolutely. But yeah, like, he gives, he has a great facial performance. Mm -hmm. Um, Once you kind of get used to hearing their voices, early 30s sound technology is not very friendly to frequencies either at the very high or very low end. So you have to kind of train your ear to hear them. But it's a great vocal performance as well. So you talked about that we don't gawk at these people, that that's why you liked the slice of life stuff. Yeah. I think it's very interesting that we never really see anyone's act. Yeah, it's all behind the scenes. We see a lot of things that are clearly in their acts, uh, because we see them doing all kinds of astounding, amazing things offstage, like Prince Randian rolling and lighting a cigarette for himself without his, you know, without any limbs, or um, various, you know, little bits of business with Frozo trying things for his act. But yeah, like, we never see the circus actually perform. And I was thinking about, you know, is this just because the movie's had a half hour cut out of it? Or is this like a conscious choice so that we do regard the cast as people instead of as a show? Like the only character that we are actually shown their act and asked as an audience to gawk at is Cleo after she's become mutilated into the duck woman. Mm -hmm. She's the only person we're supposed to be gawking at, not the rest of them. And I, I just, it seems like that's interesting enough that it might be a conscious choice. I think that's a really interesting point. Before the fateful night of the storm, right? Like when the it's after the wedding feast and the the freaks are very suspicious of what Cleo is up to, and they're always watching her, right? Um, and she like they're blatant about how much they are watching her, and she's very freaked out about it. But um, I think. There's something there about the gaze as well, because, like, the way that they're... Yeah, they're peering through and being, like, a little creepy, like, spies. But, like, I wouldn't be surprised to see a child peeking through bars at a performer or at an animal in the same way that they're peering at her. Mm-hmm. So I, I wonder if that's foreshadowing a little bit of that theme as sure. well. One of the other things you brought up was the way that the ending... If the people enacting the violence are sympathetic, does that make this still a horror film? Is it a betrayal of the sympathy that it's trying to, like, are we trying to fit a square into a round hole kind of thing? Like, you were you were bringing up these genre issues based on the structure of the film. I think that with that ending and with what we're talking about, Freaks falls very clearly into the horror genre for me, but it's a very specific subgenre. Shitty people get their comeuppance with a gruesome, ironic twist ending subgenre, you know, which is exemplified by like horror anthology series. Um, particularly, I'm thinking of like the Tales of the Crypt, uh, Tales, <laughs> yeah. yeah, Tales from the Crypt, yeah, uh, comic book. <laughs> 
Like, that's what this is, right? Like, this is a, an episode of Tales from the Crypt expanded into an hour. And the thing about those stories is Cleo's fate is ironic, right? Um, she wanted to marry into the Freaks community, and they say, you know, one of us, one of us. And then when she rejects them, they turn her into one of them, kind of force the issue. And I think that if we separate thoughts of good and evil or morality or judgment from this movie, and we just look at it structurally. You know, the, the freaks are the monsters who are enacting violence upon Cleo the victim. But the difference between freaks and something like, you know, Dracula, is that the moral judgment is switched. Mm. The monsters are good, the victims are evil. And I, that's very common in this particular subgenre, because this subgenre is as old as your mother saying, like, don't steal from the cookie jar or the boogeyman will come get you. You know, the boogeyman's a big scary monster, but the only reason he's going to come after you is if you act bad. So it's, it's, it's the idea of having something horrible happen to you as a punishment for your horrible actions. And that's still a very classic horror structure. Mm -hmm. It's just a little different than the ones we've been seeing so far on film because so far the films we've been seeing have been very clear about the victims being good people. Yeah. Like ultimately the message of the film is sort of a, you know, that the true freaks are people who, you know, are, are bad people like, like Cleopatra yeah. and Hercules, right? Um, that's a pretty clear theme and, and the fact that the freaks are kind of justified in what they do the film makes that case pretty well. I still think that the reason why it's still a horror story and the reason why all of this subgenre of watching bad people get their ironic comeuppance is still a horror genre is because as sympathetic as the freaks may be, who the story's kind of directed at are the people who may be were more like Cleo and Hercules Mm. or even Venus, than they were like Frozo. Yeah. Right? Like, this is a film where I think the assumption is that a lot of people watching this film would be learning for the first time about how, you know, these individuals have their own thoughts and feelings and emotions like anybody else, and kind of saying, like, hey, if you demean and dehumanize other people, you deserve what's coming to you. Yeah. You know, what's interesting is we get a character like Venus, right, who's good, but she's not as good as Frozo. Like, Frozo's so clearly interacting with the freaks like they're just everyday, ordinary folk. And he's very friendly and open with them. And she's even a little put off. You know, she's not mean to them, but she sort of prefers that they stay over there. Yeah. And I think that's sort of the majority of an audience, right? The majority of an audience would be the people who would say, like, oh, yeah, like, I don't think we should treat them poorly, but I'm uncomfortable when they're around. Mm. You know, and there's a lot of subgroups who could identify that experience. And that's, you know, what the film's saying. Like, well, you can either be like Frozo or you can be like Hercules and Cleo. What do you want to be? And, and it's, it's, it's the scariest straight type of scare. <laughs> yeah. uh, but, uh, but that's what it is, right? So I, I think that you're totally right in identifying who's sympathetic in the movie. I still think it's a horror movie because of this particular existing niche that it falls into. So that's really interesting that this particular niche and subgenre that you're identifying, this is the first film we're seeing that does that. Yeah, for sure. Like, I, it must be 
fairly old in like literature and folktale. Like I feel, I feel like the idea of like the Brothers Grimm had yeah, that nailed down. Yeah, for sure. Like be a good person, or the monsters are gonna come get you. Is like pretty old fashioned. But yeah, you're absolutely right that this is the first time we see it in film, and that I think it's very interesting that you know the test audiences had the same reaction that you did of not being quite sure like where their sympathies were supposed to lie and what the film was trying to say and what were they supposed to think. And I think it's interesting that when I think of these kinds of stories, I think of the 1950s. I think of Twilight Zone and Tales from the Crypt (laughs) and that kind of era. So then the fact that it was so much more accepted in the 60s after the 50s Twilight Zone Tales from the Crypt have happened... I think that's saying something again. Yeah, I think it's it's about, like, the, the cultural context was there, right? There was no cultural context for freaks to exist in, in 1932, for us to understand how to, how to process it. You know, what slot in our brain we were supposed to place it in. Yeah, afterwards, it was like, oh, this is clearly this kind of story. And I think that's true of a lot of movies that maybe are not well regarded when they first come out and then later become reappraised is when they're not like anything else. And so it, audiences don't know what to make of them. And then after a while, there's enough stuff like it that audiences go, oh, this is like that. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. I think we've covered like the thematic elements pretty well. One of the things I wanted to bring up was just from like a filmmaking perspective. Like I know that the film's pretty chopped up and it's hard to judge in a lot of places. Yeah. But it seems to me like that cinematically the movie's pretty pedestrian in how it's being shot. Like until you get to the wedding feast, you basically can't tell this is a horror movie, right? It's kind of just a circus drama. Yeah. But what I found interesting is like the wedding feast's kind of the first scene where it starts to be horrific, and then obviously there's the climax, and those are the two scenes that have the most like style thrown at them. Right? Like, the wedding scene is very cacophonous. It has a lot of overlapping sound, a lot of quick, jarring cuts. And then, of course, the finale is this dark, rain-drenched nightmare uh, that's very stylish and evocative and and unforgettable in its visuals. And I just thought it was kind of interesting that, like, when it's time to go to horror, that's when the style kind of kicks in in this film. We saw this in Browning's Dracula as mm. well, right? Like, the opening castle and everything was very, very sleek, very great, and then everything was pretty pedestrian, as you said, when we came to conversations in draw rooms. Mm-hmm. And it makes me wonder, like, if I was 1932 and was friends with Todd Browning, I would ask him how he divvies up his creative energy. Right. Because he clearly pours a lot of it into the things that he's very passionate about. Like these two horror scenes, like the script and the, I would say, the characters and performers. Mm -hmm. And I would suggest to him to make sure that he gives that same kind of care and passion to everything else so that it doesn't feel weird like this. It doesn't feel Jarring. jarring. And like you can see it more in Dracula, I think, with the conversations on a stage versus like the interesting castle but I think you're totally right that you can still see it here yeah I think it helps a little bit in this movie that we get that silent film style title card the wedding feast that kind of comes there and that signals that the movie's different from that point on almost right yeah Um, especially because that comes like directly after Cleo's like yeah 
he's a little person. I could just use a little bit of poison. Like, she's clearly made the decision of what she's going to do. Yes. And then the rest of the movie, almost at the halfway mark, yeah. is, like, explicitly horror. Yeah, and we don't even see the wedding. We kind of just cut over it to the next important thing, right? Yeah. I think we've maybe settled this topic already, but I'll, I'll raise the question explicitly. Do we think this film is exploitative of its performers in terms of using their deformities or their conditions for shock? Or is the film empowering because it takes their side and shows them as formidable? When I was having difficulties of how this film is grappling with horror conventions, with deformities being a sign of evil and everything like that, like I kind of realized that the camera... Mm-hmm. The camera's gaze does not do so. Okay. In the beginning part, like I've kind of mentioned earlier, like it's just the people living their lives. It's not us looking and gawking at who they are or what they are. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I don't know. I, I feel like even at the end, it's not... Maybe the horror is coming from like the acts that these previously sympathetic people are doing. Mm-hmm. But... I do see it as them being heroes in their own story. Yeah, I I find, like, one of the things I always notice about this film is, like, when there's scenes that are just between, say, Hans and Frida, that they are framed up the same way that, like, Venus and Frozo might be framed up, right? They're not Framed up as in... Like, the camera's not looking down at them from a standard eyeline. Oh, okay. Right? Like, if we're in a scene where it's Hans and Frida talking in Hans's wagon, they're framed at their eye level, and they're shot just as you'd shoot that scene between two average-sized people. Yeah. Right? They're not being framed in such a way to emphasize their smallness. Yeah. So, I think we're then in agreement that, like, this... Because that was one of the criticisms that was leveled against this film, was that it was being exploitative of these people. No, I think the film and Browning are very much on the side of these are just people. Yeah, for sure. Okay, so we want to move into ranking then. Yeah, ranking. Okay. okay. So did you have a range uh, that you were looking at for Freaks? I do. Okay. So the highest, mm-hmm. I would put it, is either above or below the Fall of the House of Usher, sitting at number 10. Okay. And the lowest, I would put it, is probably above Genuina, sitting at 14. Okay. Our ranges are pretty similar. Cool. Uh, I was thinking the highest I would put this film would be above The Cat and the Canary at number 8, below Phantom of the Opera. And the lowest I was willing to go is below the original version of The Student of Prague, above Eerie Tales. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I had just, on um, sort of both edges of the range, just a slightly higher opinion. I'm surprised that you would put it so high in competition with Cat and the Canary, because you really loved that movie. Yeah. Um, and I know you, you're a big fan of this movie, so I'm wondering if you can expand on that. I guess, um, like, Cat and the Canary is definitely more of, like, a horror film from beginning to end, right? Like, it's definitely spookier. But Freaks is a little more genuine about the story that it's telling, Right? Like, Cat in the Canary is still a little spoopy, uh, (laughs) and is still a little bit just kind of a parlor room mystery kind of thing. Right? Freaks has a little more impact. So that's, that's why I was thinking there. As to the opposite end of my spectrum, I felt like 
at its lowest, that it was still like a more cohesive and better put together film than Eerie Tales, which was kind of the anthology film where only some of the segments really worked for me. Yeah. Um, and certainly, obviously, more put together than Genuina, even though both Genuina and Freaks suffered from a lot of cuts uh, being made to them. I think that Freaks still, even in the truncated forms, Freaks holds up better than Genuina does. When I was looking at my range, I was thinking that the highest I would put it is below the 1926 Student of Prague. Right. With Conrad Veidt. Yeah. And I think a big part of that is they both feel... I guess I was kind of looking at styles. Yeah. So Cat on the Canary, as you said, is filmed as a horror movie. It's mm -hmm. very groundbreaking in an American movie being so uh, dark and stylistic. Yeah, for sure. The 1926 Student of Prague is similarly kind of taking German Expressionism to another level mm -hmm. than it had previously been. Mm -hmm. Freaks is a bit more standard, rather outside of those couple of films, but I think the quality of it puts it definitely above Genuina. I, I had started with comparing it with Genuina because of the editing jobs that had been done to both of them, right? and I feel like it definitely deserves to go above that. I would agree with your point about Eerie Tales. So now we're looking at the original Student of Prague. Yeah, which did kind of like a bait and switch. Right. <laughs> I mean, similar to this movie, too, where, like, the climaxes of both are very horror movie, but you could never tell going in. Although, that being said, like, Freaks, because it has the framing structure with the carnival barker, kind of no lets you know that we're in for something uh, when it starts. Whereas the original Student of Prague introduces itself as a romance drama. Yeah. Uh, and then ends with a dude killing himself. <laughs> so, a little bit more bait and switch. Because of the, you make a really great point about the framing narrative, and I think also just the effectiveness of the horror, I think Freaks can go above the original Student of Prague. Alright. So um, now we're even, like, looking with, like, Orlok's hands, mm -hmm. uh, Fall of the House of Usher. Uh, I think that Orlok, like, has a more consistent style in terms of horror. Like, that, you know, you, you start with that opening train crash, and then you go through all the scenes of... Conrad Veidt gesticulating in the darkness, you know, and then meeting <laughs> dudes in basements and stuff. I think stylistically it's more consistent, but what do you think about how effective those two films are? Well, we had a big criticism of The Hands of Orlac, where it was so focused on Conrad Veidt going insane about his hands more than anything else. Right, to the point where the plot was kind of an afterthought. Yeah, whereas this... I don't get that kind of feeling, even with Browning's passion clearly being on particular scenes. And even with how much was cut out of this movie, you can still, like you said in the beginning, get the general idea of what's going on. Mm -hmm. So I think that's me saying that this should go above The Hands of Orlac. Okay. I, I, like, I'm a little bit conflicted on that one just because I always remember the stunning, stark visuals of The Hands of Orlac. But I will say that the climax of Freaks with the rain and the mud and the lightning and the thunder and all of these characters slowly crawling at you uh, violently is definitely more effective than a police officer in a bar with 15 different title cards explaining to you like this <laughs> long-winded explanation of the plot. So I'll, I, I could put it above Hans Vorlach. Um 
I think maybe that's as high as I'm comfortable with, though, because I, I just, I'm not a huge fan of Fall of the House of Usher, but I think on a list of horror films that Fall of the House of Usher is just, like, got the edge in weird, <laughs> in weirdness, right? I'm feeling that same feeling, <laughs> that same uh, uncomfortableness mm. as well. I thought maybe it was because I really was a fan of The Fall of the House of Usher, whereas you weren't. Like, mm-hmm. I had to really fight for that movie. I'm happy with Freaks going below that. Can you, as someone who was a fan of Usher, can you articulate a reason why it's better than Freaks? Because all I was able to come up with was that it was more effectively weird. <laughs> Everything in the House of Usher is working towards a feeling of nightmarish horror of you killing the person you love because of a curse mm-hmm. that you can't avoid. This feeling of unavoidability, and even afterwards, a, a feeling of guilt. Right. The scenes that really stand out in my mind with that film is when Usher is, like, approaching the painting with, like, that look in his eye. Mm-hmm. Um, all of the, like, the editing, the effects, the trick shots, the pacing, um, the way it has mini climaxes throughout it, it felt like a whole experience. Sure. Whereas Freaks, if you, if you only had a, like, a very limited amount of time to show someone Freaks, you could skip the first half. Yeah, that's true. Freaks is more disjointed. You know, it's a little unfair because it was so aggressively cut down. But I, I think I would agree with you that it's it's less of a whole piece. Mm-hmm. Would you also then say that you're arguing that, like, the inevitability of fate is more existentially terrifying than just this idea of, like, treat people who are different than you well, or they will come and get you? This might get too heavy, mm. but in the world that we are living in, there's a lot of criticism of when people push back against violence being done to them. Yeah. The idea of, like, you getting punched and then you being in the wrong for punching back... Yeah. That, that's just in the conversations right now. So I'm really uncomfortable comparing the horror of freaks where we see and I, I see them as heroes when they are punching back against the violence that is being done to them versus my family has a curse that means I have to paint my wife. I mean, I think, and and I tried to address this a little bit earlier, but it's always important when watching a film like Freaks to kind of separate terms like hero and protagonist and monster and recognize that, you know, a monster can be a hero and that the hero is not necessarily the protagonist and that the monster is not necessarily the, like, that these are all separate words for a reason, right? And I think that, I think that, you know, again, the, the monsters, if you want to call them that, in Freaks being heroic, does not necessarily... I don't think the film is judging the Freaks for being violent at the end or trying to say we should be afraid of them. I think it's a morality tale, right, that's saying this is what will happen to you, and if it happens to you, it'll be justified. And I think that's... If we compare it to the conversation happening now, that's one of the things that makes Freaks unique, is that I think if Freaks had wanted to be more culturally accepted when it came out, it would have had Frozo come in 
and beat up Hercules and take down Cleopatra because it always seems like it's more culturally acceptable for, you know, like we know that racism is bad or that sexism is bad or that homophobia is bad, but we get uncomfortable when we see someone who is oppressed fight back. What we actually want to see is a member of the oppressing group stand up for them. That's always the more culturally acceptable way to do it. And so that's what turns it into horror is because we're we're so uncomfortable at seeing people from the oppressed groups rise up. And I think largely it's because we recognize that, I mean, not to speak for every listener of this podcast, obviously, I am a cisgender, white, heterosexual male. As good intentioned as I want to be, I am always going to be part of the group at the top of the hierarchy that oppresses everyone else. And so ultimately, as much as I can try and put up a defense of, well, I'm not like those others, when the revolution comes, it's my back up against the wall. And so that's where that horror, you know, comes from. And it's that morality tale of saying, yeah, if you don't want to be the one being judged, you should check how you act, right? Check your privilege. Check yourself before you wreck yourself. Yeah, for sure, for sure. That's a really important and effective message that Freaks carries. I guess what I'm saying is, like, I feel uncomfortable comparing that message to the message that's in The Fall of the House of Usher. Right. Because... I mean, yeah, because we're ranking horror films, we're not ranking the films by how woke they are. (laughs) Um, I guess I just wanted to address that theme versus the theme in Usher, which is sort of the inevitability of fate. Yeah. Which is, it's a more existential, like, Freaks is a little more visceral, right? Freaks has a little more immediacy in its horror, whereas Usher's kind of got a very, like, sit down and think about intellectualism to its (laughs) horror, where it's like, well, think about how upsetting it would be if this was a thing, you know? Um, So there's a bit of distance with Usher. Like, that's one of the reasons I don't like Fall of the House of Usher is there's, to me, a lot of artificial distance between me and what that film's talking about and what that film's saying. It's a film I admire more than a film that I enjoy. Yeah, it's it's tough because the ending of Freaks is so powerful that you have to kind of remind yourself that there's, like, 50 minutes before that that isn't that. Right? And you have to remind yourself about, like, the majority of the film isn't as powerful as that ending, whereas all of the fall of the House of Usher is, from minute one, that's what you're gonna get for the rest of that movie, right? So. Do we want to take the climaxes, then, par for par? If we're really struggling with looking at the films as a whole, looking at the climaxes par for par. Okay. So with Freaks' climax, you've got the, the dark, stormy night with the rain and the mud, and the violence, and with uh, Fall of the House. Usher's climax, it's similarly a storm, uh, and we've got the wind blowing everything everywhere, and we've got the characters having to escape from the mansion before it collapses with Madeline. I think that's her name. Uh, Having made it back to the house, and Roderick having to carry her out. In the Fall of the House of Usher episode, uh, I think it was me who made this point that It would be more of a horror film if Roderick and Madeline had died in the house and it was just the friend who had gotten out. Yes, which is how the Poe story ends, too. Yeah. 
um, and that them having survived it implied that maybe you could survive the unrelenting force of fate. Yeah, my criticism was that Jean Epstein had, like, gotten too sympathetic towards his villain. Yeah, um, totally. Mm-hmm. Freaks doesn't have a lot of sympathy towards its villains. <laughs> no, um, rightfully so. With Freaks, like, it's, that's a horror movie ending. As much as the studio tried to make Freaks pull its punches by cutting back the ending and adding, the like, epilogue. an epilogue and stuff, even in the form it is now, it's hard to say that it's a film that pulls its punches. Yeah. So, I think I've kind of talked us into Freaks going above House of Usher, but below Student of Prague. Yeah, I think I would be comfortable with that. Okay. I then, really wish we could do ties. We'd have so many ties. <laughs> we'd, have, we'd have a lot of ties. It would be impossible. It would, it would negate the point of a ranking list. <laughs> All right, so entering the list at number 10, Freaks, from 1932, directed by Todd Browning. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com, and you can also find links to the previous episodes, so if you want to check out any of the other episodes that we keep referencing, you can find all the links on the list there. On Tumblr, we also have our Ask box, where you can submit appeals, or you can email us at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com. Feel free to also follow us and talk to us on Twitter at underscore Scream Scene. Scream Scene updates every Wednesday. Uh, we are available on SoundCloud, iTunes, and any other podcatchers that are connected to those two services. We would love it if you would leave comments or reviews of episodes. And subscribe. And subscribe. We want to hear what you think, and it also helps other people spot the shows. Uh, another great way to help the show is to just tell people about it. If there's people in your life who like classic film or horror, we are the podcast for them. What are we watching next week, Ben? Hmm. Well, next week we're back at Universal Studios. We are watching the film that Carl Emley Jr. made as a consolation prize for Robert Flory and Bela Lugosi being fired off of Frankenstein. It is a Edgar Allan Poe adaptation. It is 1932's Murders in the Rue Morgue. We've been having a lot of American films lately. Is that just because they came out so frequently? Or when are we going back to foreign films? Uh, well, yes, it's partially because the horror movie boom in America just resulted in a lot of films being made very quickly one after another. Uh, another thing that started to happen was horror fell out of vogue in... European countries uh, with the rise of fascism, mostly the fascist governments putting a stop to them. That being said, uh, we do have some foreign films coming up after Murders in the Rue Morgue. We will be watching Vampire, which is a foreign film. Right. Uh, and that actually leads me into another topic that I wanted to bring up. So we would really like to be able to watch the 1932 sound remake of Unheimliche Geschichten, or Eerie Tales, directed by Richard Oswald and starring Paul Wigner. Unfortunately, I haven't been able to find a viewable copy of it anywhere. The best I've been able to dig up is a German VHS uh, edition with no subtitles that isn't anywhere online, of course, and it doesn't really make sense for me to shell out a ton of money to order a VHS tape from Germany when I don't speak 
German. <laughs> so if any listeners have any leads on a way for us to view that particular film, preferably with English subtitles, that'd be great, because otherwise I think we're going to have to drop it from the show. But that's, that's Paul Wigner's speaking role. Yes. I need to be able to hear what his voice sounds like. I mean, I think the trailer is on YouTube. I think we can watch that. But yeah, um, obviously, if we have to skip it and then a copy does turn up, we'll go back and do like a bonus episode. But yeah, if any listeners could point us in the right direction, that'd be great. Because uh, that episode should be coming up in two weeks. Uh, otherwise, we'll be skipping right to White Zombie. But nevertheless, next week, it's Murders in the Room Morgue, starring Bela Lugosi. We'll see you next week, Creatures of the Night. (laughs) Bye. Bye.